So turn with me to our original scripture, 1 John 2. This uh, subject that I bring to you has the same title of the one yesterday, Do You Love the Lost? Like Jesus does. Or Do You Love the Lost? Like Jesus Loves the Lost. And this is a little bit different from what you would probably think because it doesn't deal directly with soul winning. Brother Godair is not here this morning. Uh, we requested that Brother Godair stay in the motel and rest. Brother Godair had surgery last Friday. And he didn't tell the whole story, but he had surgery. He's been not feeling well. He has an infection in his system. But he's been preaching his heart out. He hasn't been holding anything back. And we heard from God last evening. So I know that you understand the value of winning souls to the Lord. And while the lesson today is not directed at going out and teaching someone, it has a very, very important part in your relationship to the lost this is only just a little touch of what the Scripture actually teaches on this subject. Like the subject that I taught on unity. Uh, we just, just barely scraped the surface because there's so much in the Bible about it. Let's read our original Scripture and we'll let you be seated and we'll continue to talk about this. 1 John 2, verse 3, And hereby... We do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. God's love is perfect. It is perfected in us by doing what he tells us to do. By doing what he tells us to do. And there are certain things that Jesus instructed us while he was here on the earth that's so very important that we always remember. And we've been going over some of those things. The attitude of the Christian, he should be wise and harmless. The Bible starts out in the book of Genesis with God creating the heavens and the earth. God is a God of creativity. The New Testament, which really starts, theoretically starts with the book of Acts. God starts out with the birth or the creation of the new man. So both the old and the new starts out with creativity. God likes to do good things, and he wants his people to be involved in good things. You may be seated. Yesterday, we took you to the book of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and because that this is a continuation, I'd like to take you there again, Matthew 22. Verse 36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? 
Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. That's taken from Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter, verse 5. This is the first and the great commandment. The second is like unto the first. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, the Bible tells us that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Before God told us that we should love Him, He identified Himself as being one. Then, of course, He tells us that we are to love our neighbor as our as ourself. Now, this is the second commandment. And it's likened to the first and inseparable from the first. Of course, the question then came up. Who then is our neighbor? Now, they knew who their God was, but they, they weren't really for sure what the answer would be that Jesus would give to them. Now, if all the law and the prophets hang or hinge or contingent upon these two simple commandments, it would be wise for us to make an in-depth study of the Word of God relative to who our neighbor is and what our allegiance or our responsibilities to our neighbors should be. Don't you agree? In other words, we back up with this line of logic to the first commandment. If you are to love God with all of your mind with all of your soul, with all of your heart, don't you think it's wise that you know who God is? And God went to a lot of time and effort in the inspiration of the Scripture to identify Himself. The children of Israel knew who He was. They knew that He was the great I Am, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. When Moses stood by the burning bush and he was to go back to Egypt to deliver the children of the Lord from Egyptian bondage, Moses inquired at the burning bush, Who should I tell them that has sent me? Now, if you will notice, he did not say, Who should I tell Pharaoh? sent me, because to Pharaoh that was kind of an irrelevant thing. If the God of the universe, whoever he is, or the God of whatever, if he could prevail over him, that would be good enough to let the children of Israel go. For the Egyptians were worshipers of many gods. So he didn't say, who should I stand before Pharaoh and tell him who has sent me. But he said, Who shall I stand before the children of Israel and tell them has sent me? 
because he knew that they would not accept another. And the Jewish nation has, through the years, been believers a monotheism or the belief that God is one. And we believe that the New Testament church is built upon the foundation of the confession that was made by the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16. That confession, whom do men say that I am? And then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and said, But whom do you say that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, he hath revealed it unto thee. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the rock was the confession of who Jesus Christ is. For we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Who did the prophets say that he was? The mighty God, the everlasting Father. Who did the apostles say that he was? He was the mighty God in Christ. And the church was to be built upon it. That's why we are so different from the denominal churches of the world. Because we believe, we believe without exception that Jesus Christ was the Lord of heaven that came to visit the planet earth. And we spent a lot of time in debating, in writing tracts, in witnessing about the oneness of God. Now, it's important that we do that because it's the first and the greatest commandment. Now, if the second one is likened to the first, I shall love thy neighbor as thyself, I, I really feel, now this is a very simple Bible study. I, I was very hesitant to give this at camp because it's so simple. But I really feel that if this is that important to God, somewhere down the road of life, all of us who want to make it into the holy city should give some careful consideration as to who our neighbor is and what our responsibilities to him is. Does that make sense? Now, to me, that's just the way, that's just the way this stacks up. And we can't get out of it. Now, you see, the Pentecostal movement started uh, as a, that is, around the turn of the century when truth was unfolded once again on the planet Earth that, that fulfilled the sixth parable of Matthew 13, the pearl of great price, was identified and found. We were considered to be the off-scouring of the earth. Mostly, the truth was accepted by very poor people, people who uh, were rejects from society. A lot of them were. People who were considered to be out of the mainstream of the financial and economic affairs of the world. We used to be noted as the people across the tracks. But just like God did for Israel, who had a very humble beginning, He moved them into such prominence that the people from all over the world came 
And the queen of Sheba made this statement, the half has never yet been told relative to the greatness and the splendor of Israel and the way that their God has blessed them. And we're sitting in a very unique position in the world because we've kind of traded places with the world. We really have. Did you know that we've got so many people that come to God nowadays that just have nothing in just a short period of time. God blesses them. We've moved across the tracks. The big problem, however, is that while we have moved across the tracks, there's been a a deterioration in the moral fiber of the average human being. And so what's happened is that we kind of moved to one side and the world moved on the other side. Now, the big, the big thing in all of this is that usually when you trade places with someone, you also trade attitudes with them. Now, that's the big problem. Listen to me very carefully. This is not a shouting message, but something you need to hear. If God ever blesses you to the point to trade places with someone, make sure you don't trade attitudes with them. Because the first thing that can go wrong when you trade places with people, that is, you used to take a lot of this and that and the other off of your employer. You used to take a lot of this, that, and the other off of your foreman. After a while, for some unknown reason to a lot of people, God began to move you up the ladder of success. You got raises. People began to recognize your talents and your abilities. After a while, you, you became on equal basis with your foreman, and after a while, you became his foreman. That's, that's happened throughout the pages of history. Read of Joseph, who was put in prison. Now, the big problem is that when you trade places with people, make sure that you do not become guilty of the same things that you felt that those other people were guilty of. So it's easy, you know, after a while, when you drive your big car, kind of look down your long nose and become like the Pharisees. It's very easy to do that. Because when you rule over people economically, you rule over people religiously, and might I just add this, did you know there was a time in which the world thought we were going to hell, that we were of the devil? And do you know what the you know what the denominal world is saying to us now? I hear it all the time. They're saying, "Well, we're going to heaven too." I had an Episcopal priest to sit in my office, and and we he and I we discussed at length. And uh, I said, uh, "Something seems to be bothering you about all this." And he got up and he wept and he said, "Yes, there is." I said, what? I said, I do not go knocking on your church doors and condemning all of you. He said, we know that. And I said, I hope that our people don't do that. He said, we know that. But what is bothering me and also bothering the council 
talking about the, the, the clergy council of Madison, is the fact that we want you to accept us as your brother because we feel we're going to heaven too. Now, that's quite a switch. It wasn't long ago they thought we were hell-bound. They were the only ones going. Now they're trying to defend the fact that, that, that they believe they're going. I didn't say the fact they're going. But you see, what happens is that when God puts you in the driver's seat, it's very easy for you to trade positions or trade attitudes, rather, with the man that you traded position with. Now, if we look at Luke, the 10th chapter, Jesus identifies our neighbor. This same uh, account is given in Luke 10. Behold, a certain lawyer, verse 25, stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now Jesus said, What's written in the law that you've got to do? Now, before I read the next verse... I used to wonder why Jesus would tell a rich young ruler to go sell all that he has and give to the poor. I wonder why he would require that of this man. Jesus said, now if you do this, you can have eternal life. But if you correlate that with all the other scriptures found in the Bible, it makes a lot more sense than what you think. See, really, none of us can be his disciple without first giving up houses and lands and kindred. Isn't that right? Occasionally we'll have a young man or perhaps a man and his wife that come before the district board and uh, they tell us about their calling to a certain place and they say, well, the Lord actually called us five years ago to this city, but I had a good job and so forth and so on and they They said, then, of course, I had this problem. What is it? Usually it's the lady that says, I didn't want to give up my home. Now, now see, that doesn't quite register right with me. Uh, I'm not trying to put any fear in anybody's heart that's contemplated a meeting with the district board. But that doesn't register right with me because, you see, You really did give it up when you gave your heart to God. But you see, you can be like the prodigal of Luke 15, and you can be like the steward of Luke 16, which really I think are the same. He's talking about the same person. He just identifies it in different fashion. You can go back and get it any time you want it. But remember this, that when you go back and get it any time you want it, you become a prodigal. That's the problem. And the problem 
with the prodigal is that after a while his resources ran out. And the Bible says no man gave unto him. He wasted his goods on riotous living. Now quite often, and, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this, you'll hear people say, you know, the prodigal went out and oh, he just spent his money on his friends and everything. If I understand the story of the prodigal right, he was not a generous person. That was his problem. He was selfish. He wanted it for himself. So you can take it back any time you want it. When you give your heart to God, there's much more in this repentance than just saying, God, forgive me of my sins. That sounds like repentance, but... All of us, without exception, find ourselves making statements like this. Lord, I'll go any place you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll say anything you want me to do. What's that got to do with God forgiving sins? But you see, there is a reasoning that takes place at the foot of the cross. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. God is so reasonable. And the reasoning that takes place at the foot of the cross, when you surrender your life and you say, Lord, I've made a mess of all of it. He says, okay. Will you accept me as Lord of your life? Can I be the master of everything that you have? And you say, yes, Lord. That's why you're saying, take it all, Lord. I give it to you. So we become stewards over the things that we have turned over to the Lord. So God says, okay, after you've you've transferred in your own mind, in your heart, all these things to me, I'll let you manage most of them. Now, you may say most of them. Oh, yeah, there are certain things that you have in your homes that God says, tear it up, throw it away, burn it, or whatever. You don't manage things that are evil, see. But he, he'll let you manage that. Now, he can pull rank on you anytime he wants to. By coming down and requesting of you to do certain things with those commodities that you have given to him. So it bothers me when some preacher's wife or a preacher that says, I could not give up, and they quote some thing, some materialistic thing. What do you mean you can't give it up? You gave it up at Calvary. So basically what happens is when you say, I can't give it up, now, now I don't mean to offend anybody, but we want to we poke you right between the eyes a little bit today. That The thing about it is, You may not be aware of it, but you have categorized yourself as a prodigal. When you say, I struggled to give it up. Because if you've you've been Holy Ghost filled, you gave it up one time. You may have gone back to the Father and says, give me the portion of goods that I deserve. And what happens is as God begins to bless you and as God begins to move upon you and move you up in life and change your position, you get your mind on the blessings of God and not on God Himself. 
And you become master again or lord again of those things that really don't belong to you. You follow what I'm saying? So all Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler is, take all that you have and give it to the poor. In other words, you've got to transfer lordship. You've got to let me be lord of your life. It's not that selling everything and distributing the poor is equal to eternal life. It's the submission. It's the giving up. See? Now notice what Jesus said to this lawyer in Luke 10. Now let's read verse 27 again. And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Now, we know that love is perfected in us by doing. And so, if we love God, we must keep His commandments. Or somewhere the love of God that's in us must find its way out to our fingertips in our feet, in our tongues, in good deeds or actions. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And he gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to read it. We will not comment much on it. Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. You know, Paul tells us, as much as possible, do good to all men. One translation says, every time you have the opportunity to do something good for someone, you should seize it. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus answered unto him, Go and 
do thou likewise. That's why I interpret verse 28 when he says, This do, and thou shalt live. That these two commandments were so important to the Lord that he expects us, he expects us to fulfill certain responsibilities to the lost. Now, Jesus made reference to the law of the Old Testament. I'd like to go back there to Leviticus, the 19th chapter, and read part of that law. If you go back with me. Leviticus 19, verse 9. Now, we'll not read all of it, but we'll read the part dealing with this. Leviticus 19, verse 9. And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Verse 10, And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape for the, of the vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger, for I am the Lord your God. Now I assume here that he's talking about our neighbors, because if you look at verse 18... Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now, basically what he was saying is that when you start planting in the spring, you should always plant with one thing in mind that the the sum total of this harvest will be divided up. They gave a tithe to the Lord. They kept some for themselves. And then they gave to to the stranger. They gave to the poor. Now, when they planted their crops, now they didn't have any alternative. When they planted their crops... They knew that when they planted all the way out to the corners, that that that's found in the corners would not be reaped by themselves, but that somebody else would benefit from it. Now, the reason why I want to stress this so so very much, because, you see, when you're setting your budget, so to speak, your budget should always be set like this. Keeping in mind the priorities that we mentioned yesterday, God the family of God, and the work of God. That you should always remember the Lord first. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of thine harvest, of thine increase. Secondly, you should consider the family of God. Tomorrow, the Lord willing, we're going to talk about our obligation to the family of God using a very similar approach to this, as this, rather. And then thirdly, you should also set in your budget a certain dollar figure that belongs to people that you have never seen or heard of. Now, you may say, well, this is Old Testament. Wait till we finish. It's not just an Old Testament teaching. 
Now you may say that just seems so unfair. Remember, however, that He is the Lord of the harvest now. Not you. You are just the, the husbandman that takes care of the vineyard. You, you, you're not the Lord of the harvest. The car you drive doesn't belong to you. The home you live in doesn't belong to you. All of the wealth and man's ability to get it comes from God. That's what the Scripture tells us. So when they planted their vineyards and they began to reap, there, there were corners. Each corner, they, they, they had to cut the corner. In other words, they just rounded off the edge. And that portion, those four corners, belonged to the stranger and to the poor. And, and then, of course, when they went over it one time to get the grain... Quite often they'd miss some. They could not go back and pick it again. This belonged to the stranger. This little incident reminds me of Naomi, who took Ruth the Moabite into the fields. It was this gleaning process of poor people that caused Boaz to look upon her with great favor. And surprisingly to a lot of people, this Mobadite is in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how she was proselyted into the Jewish faith. Now, the book of Proverbs, and of course I told you I'm, I've got to skip a whole lot of scriptures. But... Uh, we want to hurry along as much as possible so we can get in as much as we can. Proverbs, the 19th chapter, verse 7. He that hath pity on... 17, pardon me. He that hath pity on the poor lendeth to the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Now you see what the, the Lord is saying here. If you have pity on the poor... He said, God will repay you. And the reason why that He'll repay you, because if you have pity on the poor, it's like lending to God. Isn't that something? And so this is the way it works. Now, I need, uh, I need three people up here. Greg, come up here. Greg helped us put the fans up. Now, you're talking about a hard-working young man. Are you married, Greg? I just wanted to ask. Did you say you were married? No, sir. All right, okay. I just want to check you out here, all right? <clears throat> Brother Welch, come up here. Come up here. Fisher. Now, <clears throat> one of these has to be God. Brother Welch, stand up here. You be God. Okay. Now, we'll let Greg be the poor guy. I don't know if that's really fitting or not, but anyway, he wants to be the poor guy. This is the guy that's been blessed to the Lord. All right. Now, this man comes along, and he has a need. You know he has a need. Now, you're going to have pity on him, so you take $20 out of your pocket, and you give to him. You got him in your pocket? Let's see if he has a 20 
There's a 10. That'll work, okay? So this man has a need. So he gives it to him. Now keep in mind, though, this is just, it's not for real right now. We're just using this as an example, okay? Now he that hath pity on the poor does what? Lendeth to the Lord. He loaned God $10. Now that's what he did. He loaned God $10. Now, there is a principle that's found in the Scripture. It's not very far from here. Just turn over a page or two. And you will find this. So let's go to the 22nd uh, chapter of Proverbs. The Bible says the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Now, the borrower is servant to the lender. Now, who borrowed here? You lend it to the Lord. Now, this is the only place in the entire Scripture that God puts Himself in this unique yet awkward position. Now, this is a very awkward position. Because God is omnipotent, He's omniscient, He's omnipresent, and yet at the same time, purposely in the Scripture, says, I become a servant to the man that I have borrowed from. The man who loaned me, I become a servant to him. Now, God pays his debts, and he says, I will repay him. So, you loan to God. Now, the principle of the Scripture is that when when you do something like this to God, He doesn't just give it to you. He doesn't just give you the $10 back, say, okay, you gave Him $10, i am going to give it to you. That's not how God repays. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, shaken down, pressed together, and running over. So when God repays, the man who gave up houses and lands and such, what did what did the Lord say? He says, I will repay him up to 100-fold. Now, that's what God said. Now, when we look at the rich young ruler, you think, God was, you think God's intent was to rob this man and make this man poor all of his life? No. See, they came and they said, uh, uh, what about a rich man? Jesus said, uh, it's easier for a man to go through, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They said, then who can be saved? But God then turned it around. He said, no man now has ever given up what I will not restore it up to a hundredfold. See, God, the rich young ruler, when he walked away, all he could see was giving all my money to the poor. Now, I don't have anything left. And I'm going to starve to death. He went away sadly because his possessions were great. He went away sadly because his possessions were great. He probably thought, God wants to make a poor man out of me. Jesus said, oh, no, that wasn't really true. Because the intent is that if he's obedient, 
I take the millionaire and make a multi-millionaire out of him when he is willing to let me be the Lord of his life. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. So in a case like this, the poor man wins, does he not? Because he has his needs supplied. The man who loaned the money to him or gave it to him, loaned on the Lord, so he is blessed of God. In turn, the poor man sees Christ through him and God then wins too. Because in time, the allegiance of this man is turned toward God. So in this case, God wins, you win, and you win. Everybody becomes a winner through obedience to the commandment of the Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now I know that a lot of people say, well, that's Old Testament. That's Old Whoa, wait just a minute. Uh, I think it'd be uh, fitting that we, uh, we turn to the Sermon on the Mount again. We told you we were going to really pick this sermon apart. It's got so many valuable things in it, so many great lessons for us. Now, <clears throat> the part that I want to read from the fifth chapter actually deals with the relationship that we are to have with our enemies. I want to preface everything by saying this. If you don't hear anything else, I say, listen. Do you know the problem with us a lot of the times? Or most of us have this problem. Most of us cannot treat our friends with the due respect that God expects us to treat our enemies with. Do you know that? All right, with that in mind, let's start reading. Verse 38 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. Isn't that something? Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I send you forth as wolves among sheep. Well, there's something about this Holy Ghost that makes wolves out of some people when they get the anointing on them. They can tear up things. Really, be ugly and nasty. We're not supposed to be that way, are we? No. Oh, no. Not at all. The Holy Ghost that rested upon Jesus when Jesus began His ministry was likened to a dove. And as we explained to you Monday, you see... Satan is likened to a serpent, and his prophets are likened to wolves. The church is likened to a sheep, and the Holy Ghost likened to a dove. And when he sent those twelve out, basically what he's saying is, would you be as harmless as Christ, who was the, the, the perfect lamb, and as gentle as the Holy Ghost? At the same time, it's all right to be as wise as Satan. 
and as wise as false prophets. But our attitude should be wise and harmless. So I say that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law to take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Let me insert something here. This is a very litigious generation. Everybody wants to sue everybody. Isn't it strange that in the last days that God has set the stage for apostolics? Maybe you don't look at that as being an opportunity. But He set the stage for us to rise to the surface. Many of you will be brought under horrid condemnation and all kinds of lawsuits. Now, I know what's going through your mind. You're going to say, but, or if, or what about. Just don't even say it till we finish, and then you say it. If any man will sue that the law to take away thy coat, leave him thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. It ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Now, how do I love my enemies? Do you love and in just the feeling, some emotional feeling, is, is love just crying over their souls on an altar? No, he said, bless them that curse you and do. D-O, do. Good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And we're going to stop there and we're going to turn to to John, the 8th chapter. So let's turn to John 8, where Jesus talks to the Pharisees. We love John 8 because <clears throat> Jesus talks about the truth. Verse 32, You shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Verse 39 they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Basically what they were saying is, We've been free all along because we're Abraham's children. The truth of the matter is, They were in Egyptian bondage. They were in Assyrian bondage. After they divided, the lower half went into Babylonian captivity. They were united there with the others. And the Babylonians were overtaken by the Medes and the Persians and finally the Greeks. And in the day in which Jesus Christ came, they were under the Roman Empire. They said, well, we've never been in bondage to anybody. How, how blind could they be? But Jesus said, now wait just a minute. If you, you claim to be Abraham's children, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But you know what Jesus said to them? And look at it very carefully. 
Verse 44, ye are of your father the devil. You know why? Because they did the works of the devil. Now, let's turn back to the Sermon on the Mount. And let's I shall love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now look at verse 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. As conclusive evidence to your relationship with God He says, why don't you act like God acts? And here is the way he treats people that do all these things to him. He maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect. Our subject is love perfected this week. We can never be perfect like God is perfect. But in the context in which this is written, he's saying that the love of God is perfected in you when you act like God acts. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, you know what Titus says? I'd say, Titus, when Paul writes this letter, this, this is what happens. He said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Now this... The word grace means unmerited favor. It also means the divine influence of the heart. This business about grace is a very difficult thing for a lot of people to understand. See, it cometh not by works lest any man should boast. Now, I believe that when children are born in the world that they're born with a measure of faith in them. Paul talks about the new birth. He talks about uh, spiritual gifts. He said... According to the measure of faith, it's given to you. That's a strange thing, but I think you can probably relate to this. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, when he spoke about the revival, he wanted all of the people to come under the influence of the Holy, Holy Spirit. He even talks about bring those that suck the breast, the little babies. Now tell me, what good is it to bring a little squalling kid to church? Maybe you've never thought about it. When the revival was to come in the days of John the Baptist, would you believe that the very last scripture, the very last scripture found in the Old Testament reads like this, talking about John, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. See, revival, revival is a cure for a lot of things. 
And I think this is the reason why in these last days there's a lot of emphasis being placed on family life. Now, when I first came in, that was not true. But we're understanding the value. And you can take the little children that cannot talk. They can praise the Lord. They learn to clap their hands in tune. They can do that. They put their little... They put their little hands up and they can clap. We see them all the time doing that. And they'll nod. They'll nod. And some of the first things that they'll, they'll say is, Jesus, Jesus, hallelujah, Hall- and praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Could you believe that that little child that, that you've been leaving at the babysitter while you're coming to church, can you believe that he can get as much out of church as you can get? Sometimes more. Do you believe that he can feel that divine influence of the Holy Ghost in his heart? Sure he can. It's amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to me. You know, we feel that everything has to relate to kids. Now, I am not against Sunday school and teachers trying to relate to kids. Please understand, you got to take this in the context in which I'm saying it. I'm not against all that. But the truth of the matter is, you can preach oneness and kids understand it better than adults. You can preach holiness, kids understand it better than adults. You can preach a new birth, they understand it better than adults. This is why Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. Become like a little child. So when I'm born in the world, I'm born with a measure of faith in my heart toward God. That's why Paul said the Gentiles not having the commandments of God do by nature the things contained in the law. Who put the law of God in their heart? God put it when, he, when they breathed the breath of life. So I have faith in my heart and that faith grows and that faith grows, and that faith grows, and that faith grows, and that faith grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, until I reach a time in which God calls me to an altar, and I repent of my sins. And there I'm filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. No, it's, it's like to... A, come back up here, Brother Fisher. It, it, it's like this man, he comes up to me, and he says... Uh, uh, I've been broke all my life, and I'm tired of this. And I said, well, there's a way out of it. Tell you what I'll do. I'll give you $5. He said, but I need a new car. I said, don't worry about it. I'm going to buy this car for you. He'll give you $5. Now, every now and then, I'm going to give you some more, and you keep depositing in the bank now. You keep putting it in there. So every time I give you $5, you go put it in the bank. You come back. After a while, I give you $5 more, you put it in the bank. Then after a while, I keep watching your car. See, still going, but 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 not too good though. See? The need gets greater. Here's five more dollars. After a while, see that old car keeps running. We keep fixing it. See, it's rusting out. It's a wreck, looking for a place to happen. You know, it's it's bad shape. So I said, okay. Now you go down to the bank with me. And so we go down to the bank. And we look in there, and we say, how much money is in here? And you see that pile of money. You said, oh, $5 here and $5. Well, you were drawing interest on this, see? 
Would you believe if I gave you one penny a day and you put it in the bank with no interest, it would take you 1,947 years to become a millionaire? Did you know that? If I gave you a penny a day with no interest. But if I gave you a penny a day and somehow you could collect 9% interest, you can't today, but there was a while not long ago. If you could collect 9% interest on that penny a day, you could become a millionaire in 66 short years. A penny a day. Now, we cut it from 1,947 years to 66 years. You draw an interest. See? So you come down, you look at all that money, you say, well, I didn't make this many trips. Look at all the $5 in here. I said, okay, take this out and you go down and buy yourself a car. So here you are driving this big Cadillac down the road, and you say, look what I, look what I bought. Now, see, that's what Paul was saying about salvation. He said, you didn't put the faith in your own heart. You were not responsible for the interest. You just responded occasionally to God, and God let it grow and grow and grow until there was a need. And when I beckoned, you, you came to the altar at the request of God because no man can even come to God except the Spirit draws. And you come and you bend your knee and I looked upon all your sins with mercy and I took my own blood and blotted them all out and I made you everything that you are. And so when you walk away from here filled with the Holy Ghost, a new creature in Christ Jesus, you think any man... Any man on this planet earth in his right mind can stand up and say, look what I have done. You have done nothing because you had nothing to start with. And the grace of God that worketh salvation hath appeared unto all men. My friend, when you were vile, he loved you. When you were unconcerned, he kept dealing with you. When you were lost and wrapped up in iniquity, God kept dealing with you. You did not come to God because you loved Him. Let's set the record straight, my friend. You came to God one day because you realized you were going to burn in a red-hot hell forever and ever. And some preacher preaches hot and straight and the Holy Ghost dealt with you. You love Him now because He first loved you. And Jesus was saying this. He was saying this. Let the divine nature of God be in operation in your life every day. So if God by nature likes to do good things for people, why don't you take on this same attitude? You know what usually happens to us? We give somebody $5 and we hold a grudge until they pay it back. For this reason, I've adopted this policy that if I see a need, I just give the money. Just give it. Because I don't want anybody to owe me anything simply because I know what happens when the rich ruleth over the poor, so to speak, or when the borrower becomes servant to the lender. It hurts my relationship. I don't like to rule over people like that. 
Now, you know what's going through your mind right now. You're saved, but if I give to every man that asketh thee, what about all these people come by and they just run off to the, to the joint someplace and spend it all? Well, that's the way to do the Lord too, you know. You think I'm going to be a private detective to see where somebody went and spent some money? You say, but oh, you'll get ripped off. Well, that's between the ripper and the rippy. You see, I'm just in the center. I don't have anything to do with that. You know, God gave me this commandment. If I fulfill it, what's He going to do? Look at the triangle we created. Everybody wins. And this is the way that He sees the love of God. For the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. Most of us think that God just got down and just smeared the love of God all in our hearts. So we got the love of God. No, shedding abroad simply means it's passed on to somebody else. You know... I just just give you an example of something here. Uh, I could go on and on and on with stories, but uh, <clears throat> I believe it was two Saturday nights ago. In fact, I know it was. A man called me, told me he was a preacher, preacher of another denomination, tried out for a church down at uh, Lake Geneva. It was not accepted down there, and so uh, he was. Uh, traveling through. Now, I don't know if the story was a valid... He could have been lying. I don't know. Uh, Truthfully, I didn't try to analyze enough to find out if it was or wasn't. But anyway, he gave me this long story and uh, and needed a place to stay for the night. And My wife was sick and uh, uh, she had the flu. And we, our church, we have a account set up at a couple of nice motels where we keep guests. So I, I just called the motel, and they were all filled up. Madison was having some kind of a junior special Olympic game or something. So everything was filled up. And uh, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't have that uh, much cash in, in my pocket, but uh, I went to the I've got a little jar we keep all the chains in, so I got all the money I had. and I asked him to meet me at church, and I went over there and, and I gave him all the money I had, but it wasn't much. Well, he said to, he was just going to sit there at the, uh, at the, uh, in the church parking lot for a little while, determine what to do. Uh, I have a couple of charge cards, and I'm hesitant to tell this because usually people go out and get charge cards. Uh, most people can't handle finances well enough to handle charge cards, truthfully. Uh, <clears throat> this is not a lesson on finances, by the way. But, but uh, I do a lot of traveling, and it just so happened I'd done quite a bit, and my charge cards were pretty close to the limit. I had a pretty low limit on it. So I didn't feel that I could go to a motel and charge a room. Well, when we pulled in the parking lot, I noticed there was a van in the parking lot, and it belonged to a brother in our church. He was in uh, praying, and his wife gets off work at midnight. So we went on and left this couple there. We knew we did not supply their needs. Uh, this brother came out, drove by him, and raised his hand, kind of waved at him, and went on down the road. Got to thinking about 
them there, and the Lord spoke to him and said, just go back and talk with them. So he went back, and they uh, they said, well, your pastor was so grateful and so generous that we didn't know anything about the United Pentecostal Church uh, other than just a, a few little things. Um, he never said what it was that he knew. But he did speak of uh, our hospitality, as small as it was, he spoke of it. But uh, this brother, Brother Don Bakken, is in a carpet cleaning business, and, and it hasn't been the best lately. Uh, he's needed some work. He had some money in his pocket, but it was for his uh, son's birthday that was to to be the next day, and he was going to go buy a gift. And the Lord spoke to him and said, just give... Uh, Give this man that money. And, he, and so he, he wrestled with it for a while, but he'd been through Christian stewardship, and he said, well, I guess I should do this. So he gave the man the money. He went and picked up his wife, told his wife, and she says, oh, you didn't give Jeff's birthday gift away. And he said, yeah, yeah I really did. I, uh, I just feel the Lord told me to. So well, what are we going to do? You know, that's all the money we have. He said, I don't know. I, what? I suppose that's between uh, uh, the Lord and and uh, and Jeff. And she said, "Well, yeah, but Jeff won't understand that." He said, "But you know, we weren't going to get Jeff much anyway, and he's gone through birthdays without gifts before, so we'll just explain." She said, "No, I'd rather you leave this out. I'd rather you not even explain it to Jeff that way. Just tell him we didn't have the money." And that might have been wise on her part. So he was all prepared to do this. Would you believe Sunday morning, though, when he woke up, he woke up at the ringing of the telephone. He had he had cleaned two apartment houses some time ago. And he said, I, I knew when I, I cleaned those apartments, they, they never will pay me. And I told Elaine, we're not going over there to clean. But he said, for some reason, I did. Would you believe that Sunday morning, the resident manager called up and said, would you believe that, that uh, the owner of this, these two apartments dropped your check off this morning, Sunday morning? She said, now this is the strangest thing I ever heard of, but uh, I got two checks here waiting for you. And he went over there and he picked up the two checks and they were fairly large checks. He said, Brother Grant, he said, really? He said, I've been looking for an opportunity to do something good for somebody. And he said, I, I tell you the truth, God has really talked to my heart, and he's made a believer out of me. Now, I could go into a lot of personal stories. I've told a lot of these stories around. You think this doesn't mean a lot to God? There was a man in the New Testament named Cornelius who was the first Gentile to receive the Holy Ghost. Somebody asked me, why Cornelius? Turn with me and let's take a look at this. There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house. Now notice what happened, which gave much alms to the people. He prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming in and saying unto him, Cornelius. 
And when he looked on him, he was afraid, and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Now notice what this angel said. Thy prayers and thine alms have come up as a memorial before God. Well, I picked on Brother Fisher. It's a lot of fun, though, isn't it, Brother Fisher? If, If nobody else gets this, he will. If you had the opportunity to trade places with God, would you act like God acts? You see the logic of the Scripture? That the thing about it is that many of us have the opportunity, because we're the body of Christ, to stand in God's stead on the earth. And basically what he's saying is that if you have the opportunity to stand in God's stead, and if you will do what God always does, God will always give to you when you have a need. But if you can't act like God acts, and you act like the devil who kills and steals and destroys, God will have no mercy on you when you have a need. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, we're going into this in greater depth tomorrow when we talk about the body of Christ. It's taught other places in the Scripture. What I'd like for you to do, if you would, is to just stand with me at this time. And we're going to turn back to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Oh, hallelujah. Matthew 7. Now, notice... This was the parable, not the parable, this was the Sermon on the Mount. This is when Jesus said, and we read it to you last night, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. He told the lawyer concerning the good Samaritan, he said, This do, and thou shalt live. Now before we read the conclusion which we want to do, and perhaps even again tomorrow. Let's look at this seventh chapter, verse 7. Ask, it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, Whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If he then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good gifts to them that ask him? You know, the the problem that we have is that we think sometimes faith is just somehow making ourselves believe in our mind that something's going to happen. Now, see, the the fruit of the Spirit is the character of God. You notice 
one of the fruits is faith. Most translators will tell you that that could be translated faithful. Like moreover is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. In other words, you have faith in your heart that causes you to be faithful. Show me thy works without thy faith. I show you my faith by my works. Listen, there's too much of this business of just trying to make yourself in your mind believe that God's going to do something. See, we want apostolic power, apostolic results without apostolic living. It's too easy just to get up and say, I believe, I believe. Tell yourself a hundred times you believe and you'll believe. But that's not faith, my friend. That is not faith. Faith is not positive mental attitude. So Jesus said, Ask, it shall be given. Seek, ye shall find. Knock, it shall be opened. And he said, To every man that asketh, he receiveth. To every man that seeketh, he findeth. To every man that knocketh, it is opened. And we stopped there. But Jesus didn't stop there. Verse 12, look what he said. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He said, all of the law and the prophets hang around the two commandments to love God and your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you want prayers answered, would you always treat men exactly like you want to be treated? If you want always the door to be open, would you treat every man just like you want to be treated? He said, if somehow you can get a hold of this principle of just treating everybody like you want to be treated, even when you stand in God's stead, God will always treat you just like you're wanting to be treated. Is it in the book? Is it in the book? Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. The rock is your ability to do what you know should be done. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, I will liken, he shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came and blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Why? Because, because this man did not have the ability to do what Jesus told him to do. Love perfected. The love of God is perfected in our hearts when we do what God would do.
if we have the place or the opportunity to stand in His stead. God bless you.